Now that brings us to a new point this morning, and this is the sixth purpose for which God brought the nation of Israel into existence, and that is that God brought this nation into existence to be the spiritual leader of the world, to be the spiritual leader of the world. In Exodus chapter 19 and verse 6, when the nation of Israel was at Mount Sinai, and God was now giving to them the Mosaic law, this is what he said to them, you will be a kingdom of priests for me. You will be a kingdom of priests for me. A priest, interestingly, uh, well, let me say this, first of all. Some language scholars, this is Exodus chapter 19, verse 6, you will be for me a kingdom of priests. Some language scholars point out that what he was saying is, Israel, you are to have on my behalf a relationship of priestly ministry to the nations of the world. One language scholar says, here the reference is to Israel's relation to the other nations, the other nations. God raised up that nation to be the spiritual leader here upon planet Earth on behalf of God to all the other nations here upon planet Earth. Now, the word priest, at least the, the words, the Hebrew word, the Greek word in, in the Old and New Testaments for priest, refer to a person that belongs to a God and that is consecrated to a God. A priest is a person who belongs to a God and is consecrated. In other words, set apart uh, in dedication to this God in contrast to other people. And so in light of that, God is saying, I have set this nation apart. Here's the idea again of being a holy nation, different, distinct, consecrated exclusively to me as the true and the living God. And it's going to have a, it's to have a priestly function to the other nations of the world as it continually witnesses to the world there's only one true and living God. And that's the God who brought us out of Egypt and has protected us and taken care of us down through the ages of time. Now, a priest is also a mediator, a go-between between God and man, between God and man. And it could be a spokesman for God, but also can represent the other people to the true and the living God. And so God was saying, I brought Israel into existence to be my mediator between me and the other nations of the world. It's to represent me to the other nations of the world as the only true and the living God. But it's also to, in a sense, be a representative of the people to me as well and carry out this priestly function. Now, interestingly, Israel has already fulfilled some of that spiritual leadership ministry to the nations of the world, at least three ways. Number one, God's holy written revelation of truth to mankind came to the world from God through the nation of Israel. Interestingly, you know, in the book of Romans, Romans chapter 1, Paul points out how sinful the Gentiles are. Then in Romans chapter 2, he says, the Jews are just as sinful as the Gentiles. And then in chapter 3 of Romans, it begins by anticipating a question that some of his Jewish readers would hear or would raise. Well, if we're as guilty and sinful as the Gentiles, then what advantage is there of being a Jew or of circumcision? And Paul says much in every way, especially that unto the Jews were committed the oracles of God. 
And by the oracles of God, he means God's divine revelation of truth that is given to mankind. The Bible overwhelmingly was written by Jewish prophets and apostles. Jewish prophets and apostles. So one way that Israel's already played that role of a priesthood, of a, a spiritual ministry to the nations of the world, is that through that nation, God had them record in inspired, authoritative fashion his divine revelation of truth that he wanted the whole world to have and to give it to mankind. But not only did, has God already given the scriptures to the world through the nation of Israel, he also gave his son, the Messiah, uh, to the world through the nation of Israel. And Paul refers to this as well in, in the book of Romans and around chapter 9, verses 5 and 6. And I'll just read what he says there in the context. Romans chapter 9, uh, verses 5 and 6. At the end of chapter 4, he refers to, I'm sorry, at the end of verse 3, he refers to his kinsmen according to the flesh. And notice verse 4, who are Israelites, to whom pertain the adoption and the glory and the covenants and the giving of the law, the service of God and the promises, whose are the fathers, now notice, and of whom as concerning the flesh Christ came, whose overall blessed forever. What he's saying is Jesus Christ derived his humanity through the nation of Israel. Apparently an eternity passed within the, the council of the Godhead as they determined that one of them sometime during the course of world history would come down to planet earth, become incarnated in human flesh, and they determined that the Son of God would be the one that would do that. God, the only way he could become incarnated in human flesh is through a birth, which meant, therefore, a birth was going to have to be provided for Jesus and his incarnation through a nation. And apparently an eternity passed within the council of the God that they determined the nation of Israel would be the nation through which the Messiah, God's Son, would derive his humanity. And so Paul says here, and concerning his flesh, for the nation of Israel, Christ came through the nation of Israel, God is flesh. And as Steve pointed out the other day, those of us who worship Jesus were worshiping a Jew in his humanity. He derived his humanity through the nation of Israel. And in light of that, a third role they've already played, that God has through that nation is salvation, therefore, came to all mankind through the nation of Israel. Because the one who would provide that salvation became a Jew. In his humanity, an Israelite, a biological descendant of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And he provided salvation. So salvation God provided to the world through the Jews. Interestingly, in John chapter 4, verse 22, where Jesus is speaking to a Samaritan woman, he says, you worship, you know not what. But we know whom we worship, for salvation is of the Jews. Notice Jesus, that's an incredible statement by Jesus. Salvation is of the Jews. God provided salvation for all of mankind, for all the nations of the world, through the nation of Israel. Because his son who provided that salvation got his humanity through the nation of Israel, and he had to be a human being to die in our place as our substitute and pay in full the penalty of our sins. So in those three major ways, Israel has already, as a nation, played a key role 
as God's minister to the nations of the world. That spiritual leader of the world in, in that respect. Now, in light of this particular purpose of God, for Israel to be the spiritual leader of the world, God gave the Mosaic law just to that nation. Did you ever recognize that? God never gave the Mosaic law for the Gentiles. The Bible makes it very clear. He intended that law exclusively for the nation of Israel and no other nation. Why? Well, for a couple reasons. Number one, that's the nation through whom the Redeemer was to come into the world. But number two, God intended this nation to be the spiritual leader of the world. Now, how does the law play into this? Well, you know, the law was not a way of salvation. Paul makes it very clear in Romans and Galatians. Nobody could ever be saved through the Mosaic law. It was not a way of salvation for the Jews or for the Gentiles. In fact, Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 3 says the law was a ministry of condemnation and death. Condemnation and death. Why is it God clamped just the nation of Israel under that Mosaic law? The reason was this was God's way of removing rebels, Jewish rebels out of that nation before they could infect the whole nation with their rebellious attitudes against the true and the living God and perhaps prompt the whole nation to rebel against God. And so he called it a ministry of condemnation and death. Under that law, if you worshiped a false god, by command of the law, as a Jew, you were to be executed, thereby removed from the nation. Under that law, if you got involved in different forms of the occult, which would lead people away from the true and the living God and get them involved in demonic influence and all the rest, if you did that, you were a witch or something like that or a fortune teller, by command of God, you were to be executed, removed from that nation. Under that law, if you were a false prophet, claiming to be speaking truth from the truth of the living God, but totally perverted away from the truth of the living God, by command of God, you would be executed, removed from that nation. This again was God's way of preserving, number one, a, a faithful remnant of Jews through whom eventually the promised Redeemer could be born in the world, but also God's way of removing people as fast as you could through death from that nation before their rebellious attitudes could spread throughout the whole nation and pervert the whole nation and the nation thereby become totally apostate in rebellion against God and not fulfill God's ordained purpose for that nation to be the spiritual leader of the world. Well, sad to say, as you well know, it didn't always work. And so having looked at the six purposes for which God brought that nation to existence, we have the sad story in the Old Testament that it wasn't long after God brought them to existence that the nation itself went into apostasy and fell away from God. And I would want to read to you from Judges chapter 2. Judges chapter 2, verse 7, and verses 10 through 13. Judges chapter 2, verses 7 and 10 through 13. This is what it says. So the people, referring to the people of Israel, served the Lord all the days of Joshua, and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua, who had seen all the great works of the Lord which he had done for Israel. When all that generation had been gathered to their fathers, another generation arose after them who did not know the Lord, nor the work which he had done for Israel. Then the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. They forsook the Lord God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt, 
They followed other gods from among the gods of the people who were all around them. They bowed down to them. They provoked the Lord to anger. They forsook the Lord and served Baal and the Ashtoreths. Now the word Ashtoreths is another form of the name Ishtar. It's a derivative of the name Ishtar. Ishtar again, the name that was given to the Madonna of the Queen of Heaven, Madonna child images that began way back there in Ur of the Chaldees after the flood. The people of Israel, after a while, they began adopting this false worship of the pagan nations around them within the land of Canaan that they had invaded and conquered under the leadership of Joshua. They got sucked into that false worship as well. In fact, if you were to read sometime Jeremiah chapter 7, verses 15 through 18, Jeremiah chapter 7, verses 15 through 18, and Jeremiah 44, verses 16 and 17, Jeremiah records the fact that one of the reasons the people of Israel went into captivity to Babylon was because they got involved in the worship of the Queen of Heaven. The term Queen of Heaven is referred to more than once in those two chapters, of Jeremiah 7 and Jeremiah chapter 44. So, when you read the book of Judges, the record is there that seven times during the period of the Judges, there were people of Israel in some parts of the nation who rebelled against God, rejected the worship of the true and the living God that brought their ancestors out of Egypt, and got involved in false worship. God would counteract that by raising up a foreign power to come in and invade the exact area of the nation where the apostate Jews were located and oppress them so severely until they would genuinely repent, reject the worship of Ishtar and the other false gods, and come back to the worship of the true and the living God. And when they would repent it, that would take place. God would raise up a deliverer for them from their oppressors, from their Gentile oppressors, a deliverer called a judge. It would drive them out, and Israel would enjoy peace for a period of time until the next time another group of Jews would rebel against God, get involved in the worship of Ishtar, the Ashtoreths, the other pagan gods. God would raise up another foreign oppressor. To do it seven times, the nation of Israel went through that cycle during the period of the Judges. And you know that on the whole, things went quite well for the nation up through the reigns of David and even Solomon, although even Solomon, after a while, got involved in the worship of these pagan gods as well through the influence of some of his foreign pagan wives that he married for political purposes. But then when you read the history of of the kings and everything after Solomon, you know that Israel went through periods of decline, off into apostasy, false worship. And then there'd be, by God's grace, a new king that God would work through to bring about a revival of the Jews, away from the worship of the false gods, back to the worship of the true and the living God. It went on, on and on and on. God, because this nation he had ordained to be the spiritual leader of the whole world, had to deal with the people of Israel and chasten them for this apostasy. And he used Gentile nations to do that, interestingly used pagan Gentile nations to chasten his people who would be totally different from these pagan Gentile nations, his nation that was to worship him exclusively and not adopt the worship of these pagan Gentile nations. Now you know that one of the first nations God used to chasten them was the nation of Assyria. 
And in 734 BC, a massive Assyrian army came crashing down through the, the northern frontiers of the northern kingdom of Israel, the, the 10 northern tribes that had rebelled against the two southern tribes after Solomon was off the scene. The Assyrians came down, they devastated the northern kingdom of Israel, slaughtered many of the Jews, carried many of those who were left alive captive over to Assyria, and maybe other areas, and left just a small remnant of Jews there in the northern kingdom of Israel. You know, one of the ways that the northern kingdom got involved in the worship of Ishtar and the Astareth was through Jezebel. Jezebel was the princess of the Phoenician uh, king of the Phoenician city of, of Sidon. When she came down to the northern kingdom of Israel to become the queen of one of the northern Israelite kings, she imported Baal worship from Phoenicia down to the northern kingdom of Israel. Baal worship included among the Phoenicians the worship of Ishtar, the queen of heaven worship. And then after a while, they gave birth to a daughter. This northern Israelite king and Jezebel gave birth to a daughter, and that daughter moved down to the southern kingdom of Judah, and she became the queen of one of the, the kings of the southern kingdom of Judah. She imported that Baal worship with the worship of Ishtar down the southern kingdom of Judah. And so God used the Assyrians to uh, deal with the northern Jews for their apostasy, get involved in this pagan worship, but now that afterward the southern kingdom of Judah went the same route, God had to raise up another Gentile power to deal with them, to chasten the people of Israel, to teach them a lesson. You don't forsake me as the only true and the living God. And that Gentile power God used with the southern kingdom was Babylon. Babylon. And beginning in 605 BC, Nebuchadnezzar, the crown prince of Babylon, invaded the land of Israel and began to take control of it. Then he came back later on, 597 B.C., and dealt with it again. Then they came back again, 587 B.C. And this time, the next year, 586 B.C., the Babylonians leveled the city of Jerusalem and the first temple to the ground. God allowed this to happen to his people because they were forsaking the true and the living God who brought them into existence as a nation. They were failing to carry out his God-ordained purpose for them to be the spiritually of the worlds, to lead the Gentiles away from this false worship. And this was the Babylonian captivity. So Daniel, his friends, were in the first deportation over to Babylon in 605 B.C. Ezekiel went in the second deportation, 597 B.C., over to Babylon. And then more of the Jews out of the southern kingdom of Judah went in deportation over to Babylon, all as part of the 70-year captivity of the Jews. Well, there was some repentance of part of the Jews. Uh, there were some godly Jews uh, among them uh, with regard to the 70-year captivity. You had people like Zerubbabel and Nehemiah and Ezra and all the rest. God raised up Medo-Persia and allowed Medo-Persia to conquer Babylon in 539 B.C. And the next year, God used King Cyrus, the Medo-Persian king, as his tool to officially end the Babylonian captivity of the Jews and tell them to go back home and rebuild go back home and rebuild. And that ended the Babylonian captivity of the Jews. But even during Medo-Persia, God allowed some suppression of the people of Israel to take place. And you read about this in Esther, when Haman, a Gentile man who had a, a prominent position in the, uh, the government of the king of Medo-Persia, and Haman hated the Jews with a passion, and he tricked the Medo-Persian king into passing the horrible decree that every Jew was to be annihilated within this massive 
kingdom of Medo-Persia. This was Satan's way through one day's time was going to annihilate the whole nation of Israel that God ordained to be God's spiritual leader to the world. And you know how God preserved that nation. Took a young Jewess by the name of Esther, put her into the, into the palace of that Medo-Persian king. She became his favorite queen and through her, God used her to influence that king to pass a counter-decree to the effect that on the day of their slaughter, the Jews could defend themselves against their attackers, and they did, and that preserved the life of the nation of Israel, the life of the nation of Israel. And the Jews got a feast out of that, the feast of the holiday of Purim. They still celebrate that every year, all over the world today. Then, after Medo-Persia, that was conquered by Greece, and again, you had Jews going off into apostasy, rebelling against God. God raised up Greece. That conquered Medo-Persia by 331 B.C. under Alexander the Great. But later, one of those Greek rulers, a man by the name of Antiochus Epiphanes, who became a Greek ruler headquartered in the nation of Syria, directly north of Israel, took control of the land of Israel, and he was determined to stamp out the worship of the true and the living God of the nation of Israel. He took control of their second temple. He had a pagan altar of sacrifice built over top of God's altar of sacrifice there. Commanded his Greek soldiers to bring pigs into God's temple, throw them up on the pagan altar and sacrifice them and worship to their chief god, Zeus, of the pagan Babylonian gods of Greece. Had a huge image of Zeus erected in their temple. God allowing this chasing to go on from 171 to 165 B.C. under Antiochus Epiphanes. He forbade the Jews to obey the law. And if they did obey the law, disobeyed him, he would capture some of their babies and run a sharp stake up through those babies, put the, the bottom of the stake in the ground in the center squares of Jewish cities and, and let them dangle there until they would die and say to the Jews, this is what's going to be done to your children if you don't forsake the worship of your God and worship my God exclusively. Satan tried to get the Jews to go totally apostate away from God. But God allowing this to chasten them, to drive home to them, knows what happens through people who worship false gods, such as Antiochus Epiphanes, who himself almost wanted to claim himself to be a god for people to worship. Then after Greece, uh, you know, Rome gained control of the land of Israel around 63 B.C. And now the Jews are under Roman rule. And uh, you know what happened during that time. Jesus was here as the Messiah, presented himself to the nation. And sad to say, the nation that God ordained to be the spiritual leader of the world turned against God's son, the Messiah, and cried out for his crucifixion. And so God allowed Rome now to chasten the people of Israel. And so in 70 AD, the Romans destroyed the city of Jerusalem and the temple. God chastening them to try to drive home to them a lesson in fulfillment of what he said through Moses back in Deuteronomy 28. If you disobey me, you don't obey my commandments I've given to you. I will raise up foreign powers against you. They will chasten you. They'll scatter you among the nations. You'll despair for life itself and all the rest. God using nations to chasten, pagan Gentile nations to, pace, uh, to chasten his God-ordained spiritual leader of the world as a nation, the nation of Israel. And that's basically the way it's gone up to the present day. 
when you turn to prophetic scriptures, you find out God again, particularly in the future tribulation period, is going to use nations to chasten his people, to prepare them to finally fulfill their God-ordained purpose to be the spiritual leader of the world. And so Antichrist, the beginning of the tribulation period, will sign a seven-year covenant with the nation of Israel, promising to, to guard them and protect them against enemies. But then, and I agree with David, the whole Gog of Magog invasion of Russia and other nations going to come against Israel, I believe is going to be right before the middle of the tribulation period. And God, again, allowing these Gentile nations to have a, a sense of chasing his people. And, but then God intervenes directly, wipes out those forces before they can totally annihilate the nation of Israel from the face of the earth. But then again, as David was pointing out from Psalm 2 this morning, toward the end of the tribulation period, according to Revelation 16, verses 12 through 15, Satan, his Antichrist, false prophet, are going to prompt all the nations, all the leaders of all the nations of the world to bring all their combined military forces to one location upon the face of the earth, namely the land of Israel by the end of the tribulation period. And this is foretold again in Joel chapter 3 and Zephaniah chapter 3 verse 8. And as David pointed out, Revelation 19 shows how all those armies will be there when Christ comes out of heaven in his glorious second coming. God is bringing all the, and in fact, Satan's going to play a role in bringing those armies there for twofold purpose. One is to try to annihilate Israel before it can repent and accept Jesus as Messiah and Savior, but also to try to prevent the second coming of Christ back to the earth. Because Revelation 19 says they're gathered there to wage war against Jesus when he comes out of heaven. But God says he's going to play a role in bringing these armies up against Israel by the end of the tribulation period. He makes that very clear in, uh, in Joel and also in, Ze in Zechariah chapters 12 through 14. And God has a twofold purpose for that. One is to destroy these nations, their, their armies, and their political rulers when Jesus comes out of heaven as glorious second coming. But the other purpose of God for allowing these armies to come there, this becomes very clear in Zechariah 12 through 14, is to back Israel so tightly into a corner that it'll have no means of escape from total annihilation unless they repent of their rebellion against God and cry out for God to send his blessed one, who comes in his name, the Messiah, to rescue them from being totally annihilated. When you read Zechariah chapters 12 through 14, the record is as those armies march across the land of Israel, they'll be destroying cities, towns, killing Jews. The last two verses of Zechariah 13 say that two-thirds of the Jews living in the land at that time will perish very quickly. And the one-third remnant left get bottled up in the city of Jerusalem. And you come to Zechariah 14, all these armies come there, and they surround the city of Jerusalem. They're in the process of attacking that city to try to annihilate what's left of the nation of Israel there in that land. And now what's left of Israel in the, in the homeland has its back to the wall. There's not one human power upon the face of the earth you can appeal to for help because every nation is there at its gates trying to annihilate them from the face of the earth. It'll finally dawn upon them our only hope of survival is God. Jesus in Matthew 23, well, it was obvious he's going to be rejected and crucified, said, Jerusalem, you will not see me again until you say, 
Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And that's what's going to happen. When they finally dawns upon them, our only hope of survival is God. They're going to cry out, God, send us your blessed one, your Messiah. Heaven's going to open. Jesus is going to come out of heaven. The response to their cry for the Messiah. With the wounds of his crucifixion still in his resurrection body. And Zechariah 12, verse 10, says that the one-third remnant of Jews left there in Jerusalem, they shall look upon me whom they have pierced, and they'll go about in great mourning, household by household, family after family, over what was done to the true Messiah by their nation in his first coming. The word repent means a change of mind. They will radically change their minds from that of rejecting Jesus, their Messiah and Savior, to that of gladly accepting him as their Messiah and Savior. In response to their repentance and accepting Jesus, their Messiah and Savior, Zechariah 13, verse 1 says, God will open up to them a fountain of cleansing, will wash away their sin. Now the nation that God intended to be the spiritually of the whole world is finally spiritually right with the true and the living God. When that happens, Zechariah 14, 3 says, Then will the Lord go to battle. And if you want a graphic description of Jesus will destroy all the armies and political rulers of all the nations of the world gathered there against the people of Israel. By the way, parallel passage, Revelation 19, look at Zechariah 14, verses 12 through 15. It's a graphic description of the wrathful judgment of God that Jesus will bring upon those Gentile forces that are trying to eliminate Israel. He will intervene once they repent, once they repent. Now here's, here's the, the whole picture God has made it clear through the prophets he will not set up his kingdom rule upon planet earth through the Messiah until the nation of Israel repents of its rebellion against God and accepts their Messiah. It's not the Gentiles that have to do that. It's not the Samaritans that have to do that. It's specifically the nation of Israel that must repent and accept Jesus as Messiah and Savior before God will crush Satan and rid Satan's rule from the world system and God established his thousand-year millennial kingdom rule upon the face of the earth. Why is it its nation and not the Gentiles or Samaritans that have to do that? The reason is God's revealed that he's intended that through the thousand-year reign of Christ, the nation of Israel will finally, perfectly fulfill his God-ordained purpose for them to be the spiritual leader of the whole world, the priests of the whole world. And so he's not going to set up that kingdom until the nations be the spiritual leader, is itself spiritually right with God. Because you can't have a spiritual leader out of joint with God, leading other people and nations in a right relationship with the true and the living God. Now, how do we know that God's intended then for the nation to be that spiritual leader during the millennium? Isaiah chapter 2, verses 1 through 4, makes it very clear that during the thousand reign of the Messiah, there's going to be a new temple built there in Israel, capital city of Jerusalem, and that's where the Messiah will dwell for the thousand years of his reign. And it says that all the nations, all the Gentiles, will come to Israel's capital city of Jerusalem for a twofold purpose. Number one, to hear the word of the Lord taught to them by the Messiah, God's Son. And secondly, to be instructed on how God's rule is to be administered over them. This is God's way of saying he's ordained that during the thousand year reign of Christ, Jerusalem, Israel's capital city, be both the, the spiritual as well as political governmental center of the whole world. 
And all the nations are going to recognize that and come there for that biblical instruction and how God's rule is to be administered over them. Then in Isaiah chapter 61, verse 6, Isaiah 61, verse 6, God speaking ahead of time to Jews who will be living there during Messiah's reign says this, You will be called the priests of the Lord, the ministers of our God. He's saying the Gentiles will call you people of Israel the priests of the Lord, the ministers of our God. The Gentile nation of the world will recognize Israel as God's ordained spiritual leader over them for the thousand-year reign of the Messiah. Then you go to Zechariah chapter 8. Zechariah chapter 8, beginning in verse 20, going to the end of the chapter, where God foretells that during the future millennial reign of the Messiah, Gentiles from all over the world are going to say to each other, let's go to Jerusalem to pray, to worship. They want to go to Israel, capital city, to pray and to worship. And they say, he says there, that when that happens, 10 Gentiles will lay hold of one Jew and say, take us with you to Jerusalem to pray, to worship the Lord because we see God is with you. Indicate the Gentiles will recognize during Christ's reign that God has ordained the people of Israel to be the spiritual leader of the world who will be leading the Gentiles up to Israel's capital city to pray and to worship the Lord. God intended Israel to be the spiritual leader of the world. He raised it up for that purpose. But it's failed, like we failed, over and over and over again but the reason he's going to allow all the nations to come against them by the end of the tribulation period, right before the second coming of Christ, is because that's what it's going to take to end the rebellion against God and bring them to recognize the true Messiah and Savior. And once they do that, that's when the Lord intervenes and ends Gentile world rule of pagan nations from the face of the earth and sets up his kingdom where God's rule will be administered over all of mankind, and the nation of Israel will be a spiritual leader, will finally fulfill perfectly what he raised up that nation to be down through the ages of time to the other Gentile nations of the world. God our Father, we worship you together with Jesus Christ, your Son, the Holy Spirit, as the only true and living God. We recognize you are the sovereign, omnipotent, creator, preserver, provider, and ruler of the whole universe and all of mankind. We thank you for the plan and purpose you have for the nation of Israel. We thank you that you're going to fulfill that purpose, bring it to fruition in conjunction with the second coming of your son. But Lord, we're sorry that before that happens, Israel is going to have to go through the worst time it's ever experienced in all of world history, particularly during that second half of the tribulation period, as nations come against them and Antichrist turns against them to desolate them. But Lord, we know that you have a sovereign purpose for that, to break the rebellion and bring them to true faith in you and your Messiah, the Lord Jesus, so that they can finally fulfill what you have designed for them ever since you brought them to existence as a nation. For this we worship you and we praise you and thank you. In the name of your Son, our Messiah, our Savior, that we derive through your nation of Israel, Jesus Christ, amen.